Today's sermon comes from multiple passages from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the hosts, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Because you have listened, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and had eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. And uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Risen. Um, you know, I hope you all had a good week. If this is your first time joining us, you know, I want to extend a special welcome to you. Um, I'm excited that you're here. And, um, you know, we just started a new sermon series uh, last Sunday uh, through the book of Genesis. And as you can tell, uh, we're starting from Genesis 1. We're starting through the creation account. And um, if you want to take a listen at, to, the, to last week's sermon, it's online. And uh, we briefly talked about how God created kingdoms and kings, right? On days one to three, he creates the land, he creates the waters, he creates the sky. And then days four, five, and six, he creates the sharks and the whales, he creates the, the birds of prey, and then he creates man to rule over um, all the earth. And then there's the king of kings on the seventh day who sits on his throne and he rests. Well, today we're going to take a, a specific, a more pointed look at the creation of humanity. You know, why did God create you? You know, do you ever wake up and wonder, 
what is the point of life? <laughs> I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Why am I going to work? <laughs> you know, do I, you know, I don't even like my job or, you know, things like that. You know, um, well, it's important to read the book of Genesis because uh, the word Genesis means beginnings. That's literally what that word means in the Greek. And so as a church that's beginning, as a church that's growing, as a church that's passionate about the mission of God, we need to understand why God created us as individuals. And so we're, it all starts in Genesis. Uh, Mike Ullman, he was the former CEO of JCPenney, and in his interview with the author Peter Drucker, uh, he talks about how JCPenney's loss of their purpose in the creation of the company led to their decline. This is what he says. Profit without purpose is a recipe for disaster. Somewhere along the way, we got lost and found our purpose in what we could get out of the company and people, rather than seeing our work as an opportunity to honorably serve our customers. We were originally created because we wanted to serve, not to conquer. Therefore, in forgetting our creative purpose, we no longer thrived and started to slowly die. You know, in the same way for life, uh, for uh, the vibrancy of life, for your growth, uh, as human beings, we have to understand our purpose. You know, there's a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of voices out there that will tell you what your purpose is. And if you don't understand why you're created from God's perspective, then it'll be hard to grow. It'll be hard to live. And so we can't understand our purpose without understanding our creation. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to take a look at our purpose from the creation count in Genesis. And we're going to take a look at four things. First, we're going to take a look at our original purpose. And then secondly, second, we're going to take a little sidestep. And we're going to take a look at this tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we're going to get back into sort of our points here. And then we're going to take a look at the third thing, our broken purpose. And then lastly, we'll take a look at the fourth thing, our renewed purpose. Okay? So first, our original purpose. You know, when parents have children, the children are made in their likeness, right? Uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, even personality-wise, and even in their gifts and abilities. You know, I have a friend uh, who um, is not very athletic, and, uh, you know, he said, man, if my parents just, if they just practiced with me, I would have been great. That's what he thinks. He, he really believed that. And then he had a son, and, you know, he's practicing sports with him, and his, his, he told me his son is awful, and he said, you know, it's, it's genetics, Rich. <laughs> I would never have been good, you know. Um, and in and and the same way as God's children, right, humanity was made in his likeness. In verse 26, we, we saw, as Lauren read, that God is making male and female in his image and in his likeness. And, and, and then it continues in verse 28 to explain what that likeness is, right? In verse 28, it says, uh, God says, let them have dominion over all the earth to subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on earth. What he's saying is, look, as I rule you, you're going to rule creation, you know, um, I want you to have dominion. I want, to I want you to learn how to subdue it. I want you to learn how to master these things. So God tells us that he made work to be fundamentally inscribed in our DNA. You know, we weren't just meant to just lay around all day, you know, and, and eat and watch TV and, 
you know, um, just do nothing. You know, if you, if you talk to, uh, you know, um, one of the common things I hear as my parents are retiring or have retired is that they don't know what to do, you know? And so they're now trying to keep themselves busy. You see, it's because, you know, work is inscribed in our DNA. It doesn't have to be a job. You don't have to get a paycheck. But you have to do some kind of productive activity because that's what God has created you to do. But that's not all. In verse 31, God says, or it says, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Right? What does that mean? Friends, that means that, I'll get to the, the you know, thought after I say this later, but what he means is, Work is good. God created work to be a good thing in our lives. Right? God saw creation. He saw us. He said, do this. And he said, this is beautiful. I love it. So this is the first thing we learn in our passage. We learn that, one, our work is to be a part of our lives because it's a part of who God is and it's a part of his life and he's made us in his likeness. Second, work is a good thing. It's something that God is passionate about. It's something he's excited about. And he wants us to partner with him in the work of creation. And Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 tells us how we partner with him. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, uh, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now the word here, uh, the word for work here is the Hebrew word uh, avad, and uh, that word means to serve. Avad is actually used throughout the scriptures to describe the priest serving in the temple of God, right? This was their work, and so when we think of our work, God is using this word for service. When we work, we are serving in God's creative temple. What perspective? And I love the context here uh, of work where it's being used. Adam and Eve are called to work to serve in the garden, right? What do you do with the garden? It's a living thing. You're cultivating it. You're giving it life. And so our work in this world is synonymous with two things, serving God and cultivating the world. Therefore, as God's children and stewards, we're called to stand in God in his place, to cultivate the world and care for it, and this is how we serve him. Adam and Eve and us are to serve and cultivate faithfully. We're called to care about the world, you know? Um, we're called to not litter, right? Uh, we're called to study the world. We're called to refine it. We're called to be diligent and productive with our time as a form of service to God. And there is immense dignity in all kinds of work. You know, uh, for parents who spend their time caring for their kids and for the home, you, you get to partake in the divine purpose of cultivating the greatest of all of God's creation, human life. You know, I know that you know, maybe it's the Bay Area, you know, um, I can't really speak for other places because I don't live there. Um, maybe it's the fact that we live in the 21st century, but, you know, when someone asks what you do, and, you know, I know because I talk to people who are uh, more so home homemakers, sometimes there is this sense of shame that, that they, they stay home, they, they're a stay-at-home parent. Um, but, if you read the book of Genesis and you understand the rich theology of this passage, you can rest in the fact that, that there isn't any shame, that, that you may not have a business card, but you must never forget that God was a homemaker as the creator of the world. 
and you have to remember that the Father loves your children more than you ever possibly could, so you have to follow him in his word with humility and, and prayer on your knees. I think, you know, like my mom, uh, one of the most amazing things that she did for me as a parent was she prayed for my faith. You know, especially in my rebellious time during uh, college and high school. And she still prays for me now. She prays for our church, right? That's the, that's the greatest thing I truly believe. I'm more than telling me what I need to do, you know, how to fix my hair, you know, that I need to shave, that I shouldn't be eating that, but at the same time I should be eating that, you know. Uh, the, the greatest thing that I know she does for me is to pray, to throw herself upon the mercy of God, right? Um, now, Genesis 2.15 says that we're not only called to work it, we're called to keep it. What does that mean? You know, uh, when we think of this word to keep, we probably think of a keeper of an inn. We're, you know, Adam is just sweeping you know, the earth. You know, he's making sure that, oh, get that out of here, right? No, right? That's not what the Hebrew word means uh, for keep. It actually is shamar, and it actually means to guard. Right? There's that verse in the book of Proverbs, keep your heart with all vigilance. What, what that word is actually saying is guard your heart with all vigilance, right? Be careful to who you listen to. Be careful to, you know, uh, what you do and what you think and what you say. Guard your heart. And so what Adam's work was to do was he was supposed to guard the garden. He was supposed to protect his wife and his family from the world, from any evil and any threat. He wasn't supposed to say, oh, you know, like, uh, if, you know, my son comes home from crying from school. Um, you know, he's not supposed to say, oh, it's not a big deal. Right? He's supposed to ask him what happened. So we see here that inherently in our work, there is embedded not just uh, service, right? Not just uh, activity and labor. Embedded in our work is morality. The original design of our work wasn't just for optimization, but also protection. Not just excellence, but an eye and heart towards promoting goodness and kindness and honesty and love and a consideration of others and justice, right? You can't Biblically speaking, as a Christian, you can't be productive at your work and, and then go, go outside and start yelling at strangers and start cursing people and think that you are being faithful in your work to God. Or go to the home and, and, and you know, just unleash on your family because you, know, you have no more patience and no more grace for them. You see, God made it our job not only to provide for our physical needs, but also to contribute to the uh, goodness of society, to the goodness of of our neighborhood, our community, our families, our friends, our strangers. Um, this is the dual job description of our work, right? To serve God and to protect each other out of love for God and for each other. This is how it was in the beginning. So let's take a look at the second thing we see in our text here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? This is this mysterious tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's like there's this apple, and everyone thinks that it was this apple. We don't know what it was. You know, the word is so ancient, okay? uh, 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 biblically speaking, we don't know. You know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a fruit of a tree. That's all we know. Um, and uh, God told them that if they ate of this tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. Um, but why? What was so special about this tree? And the answer is really nothing per se. There's nothing magical or unusual about this tree. Um, actually, the phrase to know good and evil, uh, this phrase is used in the Old Testament to describe King Solomon's wisdom to know the difference between good and evil. You see? Many people believe that the tree of knowledge, good and evil, is, is if you eat of it, 
you will somehow become aware of this supernatural knowledge of what is good and what is evil. But really what it was, it, it was a testing tree. You see, God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden for Adam and Eve to test them whether or not they would know what is good and what is evil. Whether or not they would be able to discern what was the right decision and what was the wrong decision. God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden to see if Adam and Eve would either obey him or disobey him. Right? This is the fundamental principle we learn in Genesis 2. And that is this. It is the will of God and it is the wisdom of God to test people. Right? We, we all understand this. You don't just give out driver licenses. <laughs> no. no, you test people. Right? You test them uh, intellectually and then you test them practically. You don't just hire someone at work without testing their skills with the project or through an interview process. It is the will and wisdom of God to test people. Um, our relationships are always tested, right? Um, every single moment, every single day, uh, that our dependability, our kindness, our self-sacrifice, our grace and understanding are, is always tested, right? We're not perfect, but you know, we try to surround ourselves with people who can pass these tests. The most intimate of all relationships, marriage is an enormous commitment with legal and personal public vows of love and faithfulness, and that will be tested throughout time. You see, all these tests that we do in the world, all these tests that we do at our church, all, we, all these tests that we do, uh, that, that God does, is grounded in the wisdom of mutual love. Mutual respect, mutual fairness, and mutual peace. So in the Garden of Eden, it was the wisdom of God to test Adam and Eve and whether or not they could trust him and him alone. Right? For example, you know, sometimes me and my wife, we don't have time to explain everything to each other. And she will say, or I will say, just trust me. Right? <laughs> just trust me. I will be home. Do not touch the refrigerator, <laughs> or something like that, right? I'll be home, Rich. Do not touch, you know, uh, the lamp, right? I'm not allowed to touch anything that has to do with decor in the home, right? And so, and we're being tested, and, 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 and what is being tested? Do you trust what I will say, right? Do you trust? And it's always like, I don't think she's thought about this. I don't think she knows about it. I don't think he is, know what he's doing. And, you know, uh, half the time, we will fail that test, right? And trust will be broken. And back in the day, we used to get angry, but now we're just like, why did you do that? Why did you, how could you doubt me, oh foolish one? <laughs> you know? right? but, but it is the wisdom of God to test Adam and Eve and whether or not they will trust him and him alone. Right? Children always break this trust, this test. They always fail this test. Don't touch the stove. Oh, right? Yes. Ah, right? Uh, stuff like that. Right? Uh, several years ago, you know, I had a conversation with my friend who wasn't a Christian then. He is now, but back then he was inquiring. And he asked me, Rich, what's the fundamental difference between someone who is a Christian and someone who isn't a Christian? And I'm like, in my mind, I was I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there, read the Bible. It's a long book. That's why God wrote it, you know. Um, but it was a really good question because it really made me think about my faith. It did. 
And it made me really like hone in what is the, the difference, the fundamental difference. Um, it really made me think if that question could be answered. And I really had to think about it. And there are a lot of things that make Christians unique, right? Go to church, read the Bible, pray, uh, among many other things. But there's a lot of other religions that pray, that go to synagogue or temple, um, that read a, a book. And so, you know, as I was thinking about what is the difference, and I would ask my friends, and, you know, and then I, I realized that if you get down to the absolute rock bottom of these differences, the fundamental difference of a, someone who is a Christian and someone who isn't is the authority in that person's life. Right? Who's your boss? Who's your authority? Whose wisdom do you trust? Do you follow God? Or do you follow yourself? Do you follow God or do you follow the temptations and the cultural um, you know, perceptions of the world? You see, when rubber meets the road, does, does a person ultimately follow God or himself? So then what happens to Adam and Eve? Well, Genesis 3, 1 says, as Lauren read, and I think I have it up here too, just to reread it. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now we'll take a deeper look at this next Sunday. We will dissect where this serpent came from, who this serpent is, what he's saying. What does it mean that your eyes will be opened, that you'll be like God, right? We don't have time to really dig into that today. We will next Sunday. But for now, I'll just say this. The serpent is able to deceive Adam and Eve to fail the test. The serpent discombobulated Adam and Eve, right? So that they were unable to discern who was right and who was wrong. I'm sure you guys understand this. You know, you're in a meeting and there's all these voices coming in and you don't know who's right, you don't know who's right, you're wrong. This person's saying that that person's wrong. This person is saying that person is wrong, right? It's kind of like a court case and both lawyers are arguing for their truth and it is the judge's decision, it is the judge's job to know good and evil, to discern between who is right and who is wrong, right? And so this is the serpent. He's, 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 he's advocating for the lie. He's, ad he's advocating against God, and he's, he's making this case. And Adam, as the judge, unfortunately fails, and he acquits Satan. See, as our first parents and representatives, um, Adam and Eve judge incorrectly, and they commit the first sin against God. They go against his word. And, and now, friends, nothing works as it should. Now, some of you might think, that's unfair. Why do I have to pay for Adam and Eve's sin? I don't know them, right? But think about it. Any, any federal authority, whatever decision that they do has implications for you, right? If your boss decides that he's going to restructure your team, you can, you can voice your opinion, but the reality is he has been given the authority to make that decision. Your, your children may want McDonald's, right? But if you say we're not getting McDonald's, they have no choice but to follow that authority. You know, if our president goes to war, you may disagree with that. But nevertheless, 
if he decides to go to war, our country is going to war. You see, there is this aspect of authority uh, in the world, and Adam and Eve represented us. And it was their job to correctly discern between good and evil, to make the right decisions, and they failed. And as a result, all of humanity is reaping the consequences. And we shouldn't be so hard on those you know, guys because you know, we probably would have failed in the garden too. So sin enters the world, and it leads to the fragmentation of every area of life, not just in our hearts and in our relationships, but also in the goodness of our work. And this brings us to the third thing we see in our passage, our broken purpose. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 17, God tells Adam and Eve this after they listen to Satan and uh, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said to Adam, because you have eaten of the tree of which I have I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, Genesis 3 is an ancient text, over 2,000 years old. Uh, but it couldn't be, friends, it couldn't be more relevant and practical to life today, right? It goes for the jugular as if to say, do you find your work, do you find your life to be sometimes excruciatingly hard? This is why, right? No matter how awesome, no matter how purposeful, no matter how balanced, no matter how successful your work is, and no matter how awesome your family is, and I know we have awesome people here, awesome families, you know, when Jen and I get into a fight, you know, sometimes she'll get down, and I'll say, look, trust me, like, I know we're fighting right now, but I know for a fact that this is as good as it gets for me. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. She's like, oh, <laughs> right? You see, no matter how great things are, our work and our life will give evidence to the curse of sin. Work is not itself a curse. We, we learned from Genesis 1 that we were created for work and that this is a good and beautiful thing, but work has been affected. It has been affected by the curse of sin. And three things happen to this very fabric of our work. We will experience one, pain, right? We'll experience two, thorns. And then lastly, we will experience three, the sweat of our brow. What is that? Exhaustion, fatigue. So let's take a brief look at these three. First, let's take a look at pain. Right? Work can bring a lot of blessings. It can bring provision for us. It can bring a sense of purpose. Right? It can bring uh, a sense, oh, it can bring service and, and, and a benefit to other people. These are the benefits that work can bring. But work can also bring pain. For example, we can experience dishonesty, uh, abuse at work, verbal abuse emotional abuse. We can ex even experience betrayal by an employee or a company we've sacrificed so much for and been loyal to. And when we experience that, man, it's painful, right? Business is personal because we're human beings. We can let go by factors that are outside of our control and some things just don't work out. That's painful. More seriously, though, sometimes because of our limitations, Medical diagnoses can be wrong. 
cars and planes and buses and trains can have malfunctioning parts and criminals can be acquitted and the innocent condemned. This is the painful brokenness of our work. And second, work has thorns, you know. If you've ever gone hiking and you've got like a thorn in your sock, dude, it's a pain in the butt, right? <laughs> and you're trying to be cool about it because you don't want people to wait up for you. You're like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm good, guys. <laughs> and then you're like, hold on, I got, I got a thorn. And they're just like, why are you wearing like, like ankle socks? <laughs> you know, who told you to run, like, wear like low, vert, low, low uh, top converses to the hiking trip, you know? And so, you know, it's a pain in the butt, you know? Um, you know, they don't bring the kind of pain that I just briefly mentioned, but they bring frustration. They're annoying. Uh, you can still accomplish the task, but it, it just takes the joy out of the hiking trip. You just want it to end. Right? It makes it just unnecessarily difficult. So maybe you work directly with, with customers and you have to deal with unfair complaints. Maybe you're not doing what you love. But at the same time, you're not sure what else, what else you could or what else you want to do. Or maybe you're doing exactly what you love. You're at your dream job, your dream career, you have the dream title, uh, but you work with someone who is extremely difficult. Or you work on a dysfunctional team and everyone you loved had moved on. Or you're having strong disagreements with leadership. Or you're stretched thin and you don't feel like you're getting the credit that you deserve. Right? You're not in pain, like physical pain. Uh, no one is dying. There's no legal injustice. You're not going to lose your job. You're experiencing the thorns of work. You struggle with angst and frustration, stress and even anger. And friends, Genesis here tells us why. The fall is real. Sin is real. And we'll all experience thorns in our work even if we're exactly at the right job, at our dream job. So we have to remain resilient. Third, let's take a look at exhaustion. You know, um, I'll just share a personal example. You know, for every sermon I preach, uh, I spend about 20 hours in it. And uh, that's 20 hours for a 35-minute sermon, right? Um, actually, most of the time, I have more material cut out than I have material in the sermon, okay? That's how much bad stuff I have to, like, cut. Um, and I wish, I wish I could just spend 5 to 10 hours on a 35-minute sermon. Like, I really do, <laughs> you know? And uh, I tried that once, and Jen was like, what the heck was that? <laughs> I'm like, well, you told me that I needed to spend less time. She's like, oh, you need to bump that up. Like, what was going on? You need to make sure I check your sermon. I'm like, you don't need to check my sermon. I'm the one that has the degree. She's like, well, someone needs to check this, okay? <laughs> you know, and so it's just not, that's just not how it works. I know that spending five to ten hours on a sermon is a fool's dream. It's a fool's dream. I don't know, you know, it's a fool's dream. That's just not how it works. Sermon writing is exhausting. It's full of mental blocks. Sometimes I just sit there. <laughs> and I don't, like 30 minutes pass. I'm like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> you know? Sometimes, I, you know, like, I just, yeah, it's just, it's hard. It's a lot of research, a lot of reading, uh, a lot of writing, a lot of editing, a lot of rewriting, a lot of practicing. It's exhausting. That's the way it works. And I'm sure all of us can relate. Some of you have challenging projects where 
it seems like there's no perfect solution. You know? Uh, Jen will run some of her ideas by me, and she'll say, hey, Rich, I need your help. Uh, just give me a couple seconds. And I, say, I go in, and she tells me, so this is what the problem is, and, and, and this is what I'm trying to do. And I said, well, why aren't you doing this? And they said, well, they don't want that. I'm like, why don't they want that? That's the solution. She's like, I don't know. I'm like, that's out of my time. That's out of my paycheck. You know, and uh, don't cause any trouble, okay? <laughs> right? But, I mean, some of you spend hours and hours on a short presentation, and, and you're not even sure, like, what kind of impact it had. You know? Why did I spend hours and hours on this presentation for not getting even implementing of this? You're low on sleep, you're wired on coffee, and you feel under the gun. You spend long hours at the office, and by the time you get home, you're fried. Like, nothing is working. It's hard to be mentally and spiritually there for your spouse and your family and your friends. If you're a parent, you love your kids. You love them, right? You would do anything for them, but sometimes, let's be honest, you just want to disappear, right? Not like forever, okay? <laughs> just for like a couple weeks, a couple months, you know? You never could have dreamed or imagined it would be this hard. You know, but the thing is that because of the brokenness of our work, you know, many of us make the mistake that work is just purely evil, pure evil. <laughs> We're just like, I need to retire. As if work is a hindrance to life enjoyment. And in this view, work is to be avoided or simply endured, and the motivation to work is to bring a home a paycheck so that you can experience the real life. <laughs> but on the other hand, some of us can make life all about career accomplishments and very little room for everything else, leaving you not only burnt out and broken down, but unfulfilled and discontent because you're expecting work to give you this happiness, but as we just take, have taken a look, work is broken through the pain, through the thorns, through the exhaustion. It's a fool's dream to eliminate the pain and the thorns and the exhaustion of work. That's why we have the seventh day to rest. We're not going to be talking about that today, next week. We were made to work, but we weren't made to solely be fulfilled by our work. Do you understand? We were made to eat and enjoy food, but we weren't made to be solely fulfilled purely by what we eat. We're not robots. Therefore, Genesis is telling us that on the one hand, we can't find meaning, we cannot find life outside of the God-created service and goodness of work, right? It's, you will not be able to find meaning in life without being uh, somewhat productive with some kind of activity. It doesn't have to be, you know, a job with a title, but you have to have some kind of uh, contribution to the goodness of society. You cannot find meaning outside of that. But at the same time, on the other hand, you can't find your soul meaning and your soul purpose in your work because, as we have just seen, the brokenness of work due to the fall. Because we will just be frustrated, angry, anxious, and exhausted all the time then. You see, just because our work is broken, it doesn't make it meaningless, right? Some of us believe, oh, because my work is broken, it's meaningless. I need to find a new job. I need to quit, yada, yada, yada. At the same time, just because our work is good, it doesn't make it ultimate. You see? It's not meaningless, and it's not ultimate. And this brings us to our last point, our renewed purpose. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the serpent deceives Adam and Eve, God tells Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So mysterious. Bible scholars call this the proto-evangelion. I know, they think of some awesome words, don't they? <laughs> uh, what the heck does that mean, though? Right? Proto is first, and evangelion in Greek means good news. So, you know, why couldn't they just say first gospel? Because it's not cool enough, right? Um, Proto-evangelion. So what, they, what the Bible scholars are saying is this is the first gospel event in the Bible. This is the first moment that the Bible introduces the gospel. You see, what Adam fails to do, God redeems. He says that the pain and the thorns and the exhaustion of our work and really not just our work, the pain and the thorns and the exhaustion of our lives will not have the final word. There will be someone who will crush sin, yet in the process, he will take a blow to his heel. And friends, we know who that person is, right? It's Jesus. You see, throughout the entire Bible, everyone is looking for this Messiah, which means the chosen one, which is the anointed one, the king, the Christ, the savior, that's going to solve the world's problems. You know, even as, you know, as, as countries, they're always looking to the next president to solve the world's problems, right? Um, a lot of us, we look for the next workplace to solve the world's problems. And you see, this is why uh, people name their sons Joshua. Joshua is the Jewish name that means he who saves. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua, right? So most likely, Jesus was called Yeshua. You see, throughout the entire Bible, people are looking for this person that will crush the head of sin. And out of his love for us, God sends Jesus to do what Adam and Eve couldn't do, to trust God completely, right? To make the decision completely. And that decision has to be trusting God. You know, there's so many times where we buckle. And we're looking to our leaders to make the right decision. And we want them to have integrity and the courage to stand up to evil, right? And so you see, Jesus is that person. He's that person that's not going to buckle to the scoffing and to the pressures that tell him to not trust God and to trust his flesh and to trust, you know, materialism and to look out for himself and to throw people under the bus. No, Jesus is able to discern good from evil. He, he is able to guard humanity against evil. He's able to make correct judgments and live that out. Jesus is the true and perfect king that we're all waiting for, but he's also a gracious and forgiving king. He takes wayward sinners like you and me who are unable to faithfully live out God's image, not just in our workplace. Some of us are actually pretty good at that. But we all fail to live faithfully in God's image out of our workplace, in our lives, with kindness and integrity and grace and compassion towards others. We fail at this kind of work all the time. So Jesus dies for our sins, and through our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, we are united to him, and his Holy Spirit ignites a new work in us. His Holy Spirit ignites a new purpose for our lives. You see, Jesus is the new Adam. He's actually the better Adam because 1 Corinthians says that the first Adam gave physical life, but the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. You see, in the book of Hebrews, it actually says that through Jesus' pain, he will bring many sons and daughters to glory. 
What this means is that even through our pain, we can know and trust as painful as this season might be. We can trust that there is a greater purpose for our pain. We can trust that we have a caring and loving Father who sent us Jesus and there was a greater purpose for his pain. And therefore, we can trust that he will give us the strength to endure tough seasons and that he will bring fruit, spiritual fruit, in our lives and in our relationships in one way or another. Through Jesus' pain, many sons and daughters were brought to glory. That was the greater purpose. People thought, oh man, what a, what a waste. Jesus could have been such a great king. But God is saying, no, 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 no. This is very purposeful. This is a new purpose. You don't see it. It's a greater purpose. And so when we're suffering, we might think, what a waste. But God is saying, no, there's a, there's a purpose here. I'm bringing glory. Just, just wait and see. Second, even though there doesn't seem to be a day without thorns in our work or in our life, Jesus literally wore a crown of thorns on the cross to his last dying breath. You know what that means? He couldn't even die in peace, okay? He, they literally put a thorn of crowns, a crown of thorns on his head. And as he's dying, what does he say as they're crucifying him? He says, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do. And so through faith, we have that same spirit through the Holy Spirit to help us navigate the thorns in our work. Right? Maybe they feel like, even for us, a crown of thorns. We have the Holy Spirit to help us navigate the thorns in our work and in our life with humility and wisdom and a supernatural grace to those around us. Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't, they don't know where He doesn't know what he said. She doesn't know what she did. Forgive them. And friends, this is the new work that God is doing. This is the new purpose he has for you regardless of the situation, to bring about salvation and the kingdom of God in our midst, through you, through Jesus, through his church. And lastly, though it seems like we'll never have enough rest from the exhaustion of our work, we can rest in the fact that Jesus worked himself to the bone and he didn't let anything slip. Isn't that amazing? He's that guy that says, hey, I got it. And he like really has it, you know? And you're not to me, you're like, I thought you had it. It's like, I did. It's not good enough. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, no, that's not good enough. Jesus literally worked himself to the bone. He was trustworthy. He covered every nook and cranny of sin. Jesus said himself, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He worked and served you. And he protected and loved until the end, until Jesus himself said, Father, it is finished. It's finished. He did all this so that even now we can rest in the fact that our pain and our thorns and our exhaustion is not forever. But it's really, this, friends, this is just an interim period. You know, I know it feels so important and I know, I know it feels so crucial. This is really just a testing period, you know. And the test is passed when we place our faith in Jesus where we can have access to the tree of life and eternal glory. God is testing you in your workplace. God is testing you in your family. God is testing you amongst your friends and in this world. This is just an interim period until we reach our eternal home where there will be no more pain, no more thorns, 
No more fatigue, just rest. And not just the kind of rest that we get here, it's gonna be perfect rest. Perfect love, perfect peace, complete fulfillment in the presence of God and with the people of God. Risen, you and I, uh, we were initially created as God's greatest work in creation. Isn't that awesome? God created us and he said, this is, this is amazing, this is beautiful. But then we fell, so Jesus left his rest, his peace and his comfort to save us, which is God's greatest work in redemption. We all love redemption stories, don't we? Um, movies like Shaw- Shawshank Redemption, um, TV shows like Friday Night Lights. <laughs> is that just me? Coach Taylor is definitely the Jesus figure in there. I don't know why no one sees it. Everyone always goes to Coach Taylor when they got problems, and he's always got a solution, and he's always woken up in the middle of the night. I'm like, hey, that's God. I woke him up. <laughs> and he answers the doorbell. We love redemption stories because it's a way for us to have closure over the brokenness in our lives. We want to know that, that the brokenness in our life is not the end. It's a way for us to have peace and in the angst and in the chaos and in the weariness and in the uncertainty of life. And risen, friends, Jesus is here and he is bringing about redemption. You like redemption stories? Well, get on board with Jesus' redemption story. And he wants you to place your faith in him. He wants you to trust that he has solved it and he is the answer. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect now. So you got to trust him because there will be a time when everything will be perfect later. He's telling you whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through, Jesus is saying, right now, I'm doing a new work. I'm doing a greater work. And it's got so much meaning and so much purpose. It's going to bring sons and daughters to glory. And it's greater than anything you or anyone could accomplish. Jesus is bringing grace, friends. He's bringing glory. He's bringing redemption. He's bringing the kingdom. He's saying, come to me and you will see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that you are, um, man, you are the perfect judge. And as the perfect judge, you have given, a, you have created the world perfectly and, and you have given us a perfect book that explains how the world was created, that explains how we were created and why we were created, that explains why things don't really work like we want them to, and explains, Lord, how you are making things right. And Father, uh, we're so thankful that you have given us work. We're so thankful that you have given us our lives and our families. Uh, We're so thankful, Father, um, that that we get to serve you and we get to partner with you um, in cultivating uh, this world and cultivating each other. But Father, forgive us uh, for constantly judging incorrectly and following the lie. Believing Satan and saying, you know what? God doesn't know what's best. You know, um, if you don't get this promotion, you're nothing. If your child doesn't listen to you, you're a terrible parent. Or, you know, because you and your spouse are fighting, you guys aren't meant to be for each other. Forgive us, Lord, for 
not being resilient enough to pass the tests that you set before us. And we are all in the same boat. There's no, nothing to be ashamed here. So uh, we confess, all of us, Lord, that we fail the test so many times. And Lord, it's okay. We don't have to be ashamed because Jesus Christ has died for our sins and has lifted us all up and he's forgotten all of that. And so we can show each other grace and forgiveness and we could confess freely without any fear of judgment. And even if we face some kind of judgment, uh, we, we're okay with that because we can say, Father, forgive them for they not know what they do, what they say. Father, there is so much here that we need to learn. First, to place our trust in you and not just words, but really our actions, our entire lives. Really, that's what knowing this is. Help us uh, to endure the pains and the thorns and the exhaustion of work, to see and to have faith that there is something that you are doing that we may not be able to see now, but just as we always do with past events, we will be able to see later. <sighs> Give us the Holy Spirit that compel Jesus uh, to love us, to love his enemies, and that compel Jesus to break the thorny ground and, and rise from the dead. Father, we need a resurrection every single day as uh, Pastor Harry mentioned, we constantly go back to the old self. So would you again today resurrect our hearts, our thorny hearts, resurrect our spirits, our exhausted spirits, and resurrect our pain with forgiveness and with hope and faith in you. We love you. We love each other. We love this world. So would you allow us to love one another like you have loved us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.